Good morning, Midland Free. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Jeremy. I'm the preaching pastor here and delighted to have you all here to worship with us this morning. I have a question for you, and um, there will be an altar call and inv- invitation afterwards, a time of confession, so you can answer honestly to this. I'm speaking a bit tongue-in-cheek right now. How many of you are watching the Hallmark Channel at this time of year? Uh, oh, wow. Okay. Will you still be my friends afterwards if I talk about this for a little bit? I know it's Christmas time and it's cold outside and everybody wants to feel all warm and gooey on the inside. But let me give you a little insight perhaps into some of your favorite Christmas um, pastimes or kill times or whatever you want to call them. Cheesy Christmas dramas, I think you probably recognize some of them. They go a little bit like this. You know, it was a cold and Stormy night. Grandpa was sitting by the fire. Little Jimmy had been sick for a number of years, but there was not enough money to buy him medicine. Suddenly, a knock at the door. Who could it be? <gasps> the medicine, you know. And all of a sudden, we all feel better, and the Christmas cookies come, and there is the candles. And the music, and it's a warm, fuzzy, happy ending for all. It's not bad. It's not a sin. You can watch them and enjoy them. That's okay. But what I'd like to point out to you is this, is I think the reason we enjoy such um, melodrama, if you will, is that we're all after a happy ending. Our world is filled with darkness and death and sin and chaos. And even if it is a little bit cheesy, we're still willing to watch something like this just for the sake of the enjoyment of a good ending. Add to that, for example, the sappy romance. You know those movies where um, there's the two star-crossed lovers bound by fate And they cross paths and they become involved and eventually there's a conflict. And they stand at that point of tension and one is about to walk away. And you're crying out from within you, no, wait. And just then the other, whether it's male or female, says, stop, come back. And they turn and run and embrace each other in their arms and we all cry and go, oh, yes, thank you. The lover ran after the lost one. Again, the same thing. We're after a happy ending. We are interested in the star-crossed lover who chases after the other who is uh, falling away. But today I'm happy to tell you that uh, I'm not going to be showing any cheesy Christmas dramas or sappy romances. But instead, I have a story for you that I think fulfills actually both of those internal longings, those things that are inevitably written upon our heart that are only slightly touched upon by media and entertainment, are ultimately fulfilled by the Lord God and His Word. We desire happy endings and we are after the lover who will in fact pursue us even when we have gone astray. And today as we look at Luke chapter 15, that is exactly what we're going to see. 
in the parable of the lost sheep, what you are going to see is the heart of God, the loving heart of a shepherd, which chases after his lost sheep and rejoices when they are found. Right now we're in the middle of a sermon series um, entitled From Glory to Glory. And the way we're moving through this Christmas series is this. We're looking at basically the larger macro movements of God in Scripture. I think you'll see a um, slide of that up here on the screen. And the way it works is this. is In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. There's this perfect Edenic environment where we walk with God. That's how it's set up. But then, as you know, Adam and Eve, they intentionally choose to rebel. They, metaphorically speaking, eat the fruit or the apple, and consequently sin enters into the world. As a result, we can no longer walk with God. Instead, we are alienated from Him, and yet there is still inside of us that longing for the lover to come after us and for um, everything to end happily ever after. Next, in the movement of the story, comes the theme of redemption, where God, in fact, does come after us. That's where we're at today in today's sermon, number three, redemption, God came after us. And the theme that you'll see playing out through this story, I hope, is that our loving God wants us to repent and draw near and rejoices when we do. Our loving God desires for us to repent, draw near, and rejoices when we do. So the way this sermon is going to be structured then, for those of you who like to take notes and follow the roadmap, here's how it goes. Number one, we're going to look at God's heart. We're going to look at basically his loving or shepherding heart. And number two, we're going to see what should our response then be to God's offer or invitation. Our response will be taken from three key words found in this chapter. And those words, as you heard them mentioned in the theme, are to repent. Or actually, I'm going to do it. I'm going to flip those. I'm going to do first, draw near. Second, repent. And third, rejoice. So draw near, repent, and rejoice. What you'll see as we move through this story is basically this, is that these parables, that is all three of them in Luke 15, there's first the parable of the lost sheep, there's second the lost coin, and there's third the lost son, that is a progression. You know, it's one thing to lose an animal, it's another thing to lose your money, it's even worse to lose your son. What these things are all trying to communicate is basically a a fundamental fact about God. Um, Joel Green in his commentary says, these parables are about God. And what they're trying to do then, as Bach says, is give us a picture of God's heart. Here, in the parable of the lost sheep, is a picture of God's heart. So number one, God's heart is that of a shepherd. What I want to do... relatively briefly, is walk you through the shepherd theme as it moves throughout Scripture. What you'll see is when Jesus comes on the scene, this is not a new thing that he's introducing. It's not like, oh, there's the big, bad, mean, angry God of the Old Testament, and all of a sudden the nice, friendly 
God of the new. No, instead, what you see is Jesus is the consummation and complete fulfillment of the continuity that's running throughout. So in the Old Testament, you know, your favorite psalm says, the Lord is my shepherd. Exactly right. Now, as you watch this move, what you'll see is Isaiah summing it up very neatly. And he'll say things like this. He'll say, all we like have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. So we are the sheep and God is the shepherd. We have gone astray and turned to our own way. Now, it seems like a great big game of hide and seek. But the thing we have to realize is that God is the one seeking, not us. In fact, in the New Testament, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, that as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one, no one understands, and no one seeks God. So in other words, the only one seeking here is God himself. There are no such thing as seekers. There is only one seeker, and that is God. If anyone seeks after God, it's because God has already done that work in their heart, and now they are moving towards him. So, from the very beginning, this is how you see it playing out. In Genesis chapter 3, which was the fall, Pastor David showed us last week, verses 8 through 9, it says this, When Adam and Eve had sinned, then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But God came after them. Look, look at verse 9. It says, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? From the very beginning, you see God seeking after his lost sheep, even in the garden. Now, God asks this question. He says, Where are you? And if we want to be ultra-literal and way read way more into the text than we should, we look at this and we say, oh, I guess God doesn't know where they are. <laughs> They're really hiding, and he's at a loss. He can't find them. I was tempted this week to show you a video, but I'm, I'm not going to actually show you the video because, you know, there's privacy issues and I want to protect my daughter and blah, blah, blah. But I have a two-year-old little girl. Now, she's still wearing diapers and she can talk. But she's starting to catch on to things. And one of the things that she likes to do is play hide and seek. And so I say, okay, go hide. Eden, where are you? And she'll be in the closet. And she'll say, in here. I'll say, where are you? I can't find you. She's like, I'm over here. And the whole way, we're playing this game. And I'm pretending the whole time not to know where she's at. Do I know where she's at? Absolutely. I can hear her wiggling around. I, I hear her answering my questions. You know, she'll hide under the covers and I'll see her body all wiggling around and stuff. There's no question whatsoever. I know where she's at. I'm just engaging with her because I love her and I want her to come to me. And I'm enjoying this fellowship and this process and I'm seeing her grow through it. Well, so too with God. You know, he's not like, oh man, Adam and Eve are lost in this garden that I made. Now I can't find them. <laughs> he knows where they're at. He's just giving them an opportunity to connect with and confess to him. He's offering them the opportunity to repent, draw near, and come back. And he's saying, hey guys, where are you? He 
here's your chance. I'm opening the door for you to come back to me. Here you go. What are you going to do? Hosea chapter 11. The theme keeps going. And God says this. He's like, man, no matter how many times I offer them this opportunity over and over again throughout their history, the result is the same. My people are bent on turning away from me. They constantly go astray. And then there's this passage where he considers judgment. You know, should I blot them out? Should I destroy them? And then he says, no, verse 8, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy Ephraim. For I am a God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. The picture here is very clear. The sheep are running away from God. And even though he would be right in doing so, he doesn't come in judgment. Instead, he comes in compassion. And then you get further on another prophet, Ezekiel. And this is an interesting passage because this will be realized in the New Testament. And in fact, you could even call this the Good Shepherd passage of the Old Testament. is in chapter 34, beginning in verse 11. And this is what it says. It says, For this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I, I myself, will search and find my sheep. Now you see the word myself is in green on your text. I'm drawing that out on purpose because in the original language, there is such a thing as an emphatic pronoun. We don't use it a lot in English, but basically what it means is I want to draw attention to the fact that I'm doing this. I, I myself. Me, not another. Not you, not anyone else, not you, but me. I'm going to do this. I, I myself, will search and find my sheep. God, the shepherd, is going to do this. I will be like a shepherd searching for his scattered flock. I will find my sheep and rescue them from all the places where they're scattered on the dark and cloudy day. So God's heart, then, is that of a good shepherd. And he has emphasized that he's the one going to do it. Now, let me tell you a story about how this works. Okay, so imagine, if you will, a shepherd. And what happens is, is one day, this is just an imaginary story, the shepherd realizes, oh, man, these wolves are coming and destroying my sheep. And he stays up late at night. But he still can't figure out exactly how they're getting away with it. All he finds is this bloody mangled mess in the morning of fur and bones. He's like, man, I've got to do something. So what he decides to do is, one night, the shepherd dresses up like a sheep. He's going to use himself as bait so that he can catch the wolf. But what ends up happening is, he sees the wolf, he realizes it's coming, but it's too late, and bang, the wolf gets him. Shepherd dies. Wolf carries the shepherd off to his lair and puts him in the cave and closes the door and comes back later for a snack. However, when the wolf comes back, he is surprised to realize that the shepherd's gone. 
And then the wolf turns around and sees the shepherd standing there, and all of a sudden the wolf is about to tuck tail and run. But too late, the shepherd's got him. Bang, grabs the wolf, wrings its neck, done. End of story. Okay, I know it's not a perfect story, but I think you see where I'm going with this. Look at the New Testament and the Good Shepherd. John chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. Remember, Ezekiel says, I, I myself, will do this. God, Yahweh, promised that he himself would do this. Now Jesus comes on the scene, and guess what he says in John chapter 10? He says, I, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. When God calls himself the good shepherd, and then Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, what is Jesus essentially saying that he is? He's God, right? This is a divine claim. I am, Yahweh is saying, Jesus is saying, I'm the eternal preexistent one. And I myself am the realization and the fulfillment of that promise in Ezekiel that I myself, The good shepherd would come and save the sheep. So then, how does he do that? Well, he tells us. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Notice that no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. This is the charge that I received from my father. God's heart is that of a good shepherd, the loving and good shepherd who will lay down his life for his sheep. So then, how do we respond? Well, this is the story of the lost sheep. And this is what will tell us how to respond to God's loving heart. In it, you will see two different responses that of the Pharisees and scribes, and that of the sinners and tax collectors. You will contrast those and then say, okay, which one do I want to be? So then, Luke chapter 15. It says this, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So, two responses, two different people, three terms. The first of which is draw near. Look at verses 1 and 2. Their two responses are these. The first group drew near. The second group grumbled. The first group, the Pharisees, or, or, or sorry, the tax collectors and sinners drew near, the second group, the Pharisees and scribes, grumbled. Now, 
When we look at those two sayings, you know, drawing near and grumbling, we probably think of grumbling and we don't think it's that bad. You know what I mean? Think about all the other sins you could do, you know. There's a lot of pretty bad ones out there. Grumbling? That's not so bad, is it? I mean, we all have a rough day. We don't feel so good. We're tired. We're grumpy, you know. Our back hurts. Our house isn't right. Blah, blah, blah. Grumble, grumble, grumble. grumble. What's the big deal? It's not like it's a large emotional outburst where all of a sudden they started cussing and became violent and just grumbled a little bit. You know, they kind of tucked it in themselves and walked away. What's the big deal? Well, the thing is this. The Bible actually tells us not to grumble, and it's not because it's splitting hairs. But instead, what grumbling is, is it is a symptom, an iceberg, a tip of the issue which actually reveals a much greater thing, and that is the condition of our heart. Here's a slide that I think says it really well. This is a definition of grumbling, and it says, the fault here is making grace into a claim and then complaining because justice is not done to the claim. The fault is making grace into a claim. Now, I don't always want to beat up on children or whatever, but this is a really good example. So here it is, you know, hey, it's Saturday. We're supposed to get ice cream, right? Because it's a Saturday. (laughs) And then they throw a fit if they don't get ice cream. Why? Because it's a Saturday and I get ice cream. Now, wait a minute. You don't necessarily, I mean, yeah, we did ice cream last Saturday, but just because we, ice cream is not a claim. It is not an inherent right to life. And we chuckle at the little kids, you know, but there's a lot of stuff that we assume, perhaps as North Americans, that we have a right to. Yeah, I got a right to this, and I got a right to that. And man, if I don't get it, and the neighbor has it, and I don't, and blah, 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 blah. And what we're doing is we're revealing the fundamental condition of our heart. We are discontent with God. We are not happy with His decisions. And perhaps then we could make better ones. He is wrong for not having provided this, and we are right. The problem with grumbling is that it reveals our own feelings of self-righteousness. We think we deserve something better, that we have inherent merit, which we don't. The Bible says we deserve death. And any time we make demands of God... (laughs) We are fundamentally stepping out of line. That's the problem with grumbling. It's not just that it's quiet and reserved, but instead it reveals the condition of our heart. Grumbling. But then there are those who draw near. There are those who draw near. Well, how do they do that? Well, through repentance. Verse 7 of chapter 15 says, I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The key to drawing near is to repent. Now look, I know it's hard to repent. Even as a pastor, you know what? I've got plenty of things to repent of, and it's difficult. Because in our human experience, we've had these type of interactions. We go to someone to say we're sorry, but we're a little bit hesitant because we know if I admit a wrong, then they could remember it and use it against me in the future. 
Or perhaps it won't be that, but instead they're going to rub it in at that moment. It's their chance to one-up me, make fun of me, or drag me down or hurt my feelings. And I'm not really sure that I want to go through that. In fact, they could shame me if I say I'm sorry. It was an honest mistake. They've made mistakes too, and I don't really want to give them this leverage. But that is not God's heart. Romans 10:11 says it like this. It says, hey, look, Scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. God is the good shepherd. He loves you. He wants you to repent. And so when you come to him, it is not going to look like a human relation where you're scared or concerned about the response, but instead it is an opportunity for rejoicing. You come to him in repentance and he gladly accepts you. Instead of shaming you, he blesses you. And it's a good moment. God's heart towards the sinner is not shame, but sorrow and joy. God is not mad that the sheep was lost, but instead he is happy when it is found. That's why verse 6 in this chapter says it like this. When he comes home, he calls together, when the shepherd comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, and he says to them, Rejoice with me, for the lost sheep has been found. God's heart is that of a loving shepherd who wants us to draw near in repentance. And when we do, he rejoices. So, how do we repent? Well, let me give you three hopefully practical ways. Number one, I just kind of walked you down that path. That you need to realize, number one, that there's no shame in repentance. That in fact, you should take, uh, you should value resilience over being right. You should see the ability to get back up again as even better than that of never falling. Value resilience over being right. Secondly, you have to realize that repentance really is your only option. It's an enormous mistake to think that you yourself can carry your own burden. You can't. You're not strong enough. Sin is too heavy for you. And if you want to carry it on your own, you're going to be miserable for the rest of your life. You have to let somebody else who's bigger and stronger and better take care of it for you. Ultimately, there is no other way around it. We have to let God do it. That is why in this chapter, in verse 3, it is particular of the shepherd that it says when he finds the lost sheep, he carries it on his shoulders. That he himself carries the sheep. That is the message of the Old Testament and that is the message of the New. That God himself will do it. He carries the sheep. So just like in sports, when somebody goes into the game and they blow out their knee or blow out an ankle, somebody else has to come in and take their place. We call that person a substitute. So too in Christianity. Theologians call Jesus the substitutionary atonement for our sin. He comes in and takes our place because we are destroyed. We are blown out. We can't continue. We can't complete the game. And so Christ, our good shepherd, 
actually becomes the sheep and takes the place of the sheep and then sacrifices himself so that he can carry the wayward sheep home on his shoulders. Recognize that it's the only way. Number three, it is on his shoulders. It's the only way. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 6 again. I read the first half to you earlier, but look at the second half. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God put it on himself, on his own shoulders. For while we were still weak, at just the right time, Christ died for or on behalf of the ungodly. So God delivered him over to be crucified, and they took Jesus and went out, and he bore his cross, where? On his shoulders. On his shoulders. The whole way through, the shepherd carries the cross on his shoulders. Thus, when we go astray, God has put on him, on his shoulders, the iniquity of us all. So then, this is how we see it in this chapter. Our response is, number one, to draw near. Number two, to repent. Through repentance, we see that there is no shame. That's our only option, and it's all on him. As a, re- as a result, we can rejoice. This third sermon in the movement of this series is entitled Redemption, God Came After Us. This is the celebration that we're all after. This is the happy ending. This is when the lover turns around and says, Stop, wait, don't go. I love you, come back. This is when the happy ending occurs. This is it. This is the redemption that we all long for. For as Romans 5, 6 through 11 says, here's how it plays out. While we were still weak, at just the right time, Christ died for us. And God shows his love for us in this, that in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more so shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Here's our response then in verse 11. More than that, now we also rejoice in God through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, through whom we have seen, received redemption. God came after us. Rejoice. This is why Psalm 23 completes the story like this. It starts out and it says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. But then what happens? There's creation, but then there's a fall. And we walk away. And yet, even when we walk away, the psalm tells us he guides us back. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside still waters. He restores our soul. We destroyed it. He fixed it. And even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, His rod and his staff will comfort us. He prepares the table before us in the presence of our enemies and he anoints our head with oil and our cup overflows. God came after us. 
And now here is the happy ending that we're all longing for, the last verse. So surely then, goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life, and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen? Amen. Father, you're a good and gracious God. You're perfect and you do everything just right. We are sorry that we ran away. We recognize the only way is to come back through you. God, please receive us as humble and repentant sinners. And we thank you that when you do so, you will not receive us in shame, but instead you will rejoice. God, help our rejoicing to be in our repentance and our acceptance by you and nothing else. In Jesus' name, amen.